John Buttrick, a graduate of Harvard Law, is a Maricopa County Superior Court judge. Thank you, Bob. I don't know whether anything that I've done was impossible. Uh, I'm, I'm sure others could have done it and would have done it, although I will say that uh, being, uh, I, got, I got through Harvard all right, maybe because I was inoculated beforehand, or perhaps it was because I just wasn't listening to what was going on. I don't know. Uh, but I didn't, didn't change my political positions during that time. But uh, being appointed, uh, at, while being a registered libertarian and fairly well known in that respect, Whoops. There we go. Better. Uh, was uh, perhaps more difficult. Uh, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell anybody that story who wants to hear about it afterwards. But it, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I, my claim to fame in that regard is I'm, I'm probably the, uh, the highest elected libertarian. Uh, and sometimes people say, are you the highest uh, uh, libertarian judge in Arizona? or in the country. And I think I'm the highest li elected libertarian official anywhere in the Milky Way galaxy, as a matter of fact. So, uh, so I'll claim that uh, for whatever it's worth. Um, the, uh, the topic of, uh, of tort reform or liability reform that uh, I was assigned here, I'm not sure that I'm uh, certainly not as, uh, as qualified as the last speaker to address but I will give you my perspective. As, I, as was noted in the introduction, uh, I litigated for about 25 years with a, uh, a fairly well-known Phoenix firm. And in the, that context, I did a lot of product, product liability litigation and uh, other commercial litigation and uh, antitrust and intellectual property work. But I never did any uh, medical negligence or medical malpractice work at all. And so that gave me a, uh, a uh, I almost said a unique perspective, it gave me no perspective uh, on the issues related to medical malpractice uh, when I was appointed to the court. Now, it's, you might think that that's shocking that judges would be appointed who don't have experience in all areas of the law, but if you think about it, that would be uh, practically impossible. You'd have nobody sitting on the bench because uh, in the latter part of the 20th century, we've moved towards legal specialization to such a degree that there's, there's virtually nobody out there uh, under the age of, uh, of uh, 60 uh, who has had experience in uh, medical malpractice, products liability, commercial litigation, family law, probate, criminal uh, prosecution and defense. There's, there's no such animal anymore. So we have to appoint people who have uh, at least establish themselves in one area or the other and hope that we're able to train judges on the job, as it were. I'm not telling an inside secret, but it's true. Uh, and hope that they'll be able to grasp these areas of the law and, and do the right thing. So I came at uh, uh, medical negligence cases with from a zero base. Nobody in my, uh, even the remotest uh, corners of my uh, family history has uh, ever been a doctor or a nurse or a physician's assistant or in fact I don't even think we went to the doctor I don't know there's was nothing there's no contact with, medical, with medicine whatsoever and all of a sudden I found myself presiding over uh, medical negligence cases uh, in the first uh, two and a half years or so that I had on the bench when I was assigned to civil and uh, that gave me a funny sort of view of things because I only saw uh, that part of the process that presented itself openly in court or in written pleadings filed by the lawyers. I could imagine, and sometimes I did get a glimpse into what was happening behind the scenes, so to speak, but I never really 
got the sense, as I would have, for instance, if I'd been a, a defense lawyer or a, or a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, I never had the sense of dealing with the clients, seeing firsthand the development of the case from the first time that the, that the potential plaintiff walks into the lawyer's office, from the first interview of the doctor by the defense attorney. I didn't, I've never seen any of that. So with that, given that context, uh, that I only know about a quarter of what I'm talking about. I'll give you my view of, of uh, what's happened with tort liability and where we are in terms of, of medical negligence at this point. And, and I'm going to do that by doing three things. First, tell you a little bit about the substance of the law, which you're probably tired of hearing about, and many of you may know better than I do. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to focus it on Arizona medical negligence law because I don't know anything about any other state. Remember, this is my theme. I don't know anything. Because uh, be, uh, it's uh, uh, medical negligence law is overwhelmingly a, a question for uh, state courts, uh, and I've never practiced anywhere from Arizona. Most of you are not from Arizona, but Fear not, because most of what I'm saying would be, with some small tweaking, uh, probably um, applicable to whatever jurisdiction you come from. The second thing I'm going to do is talk about the procedures. And that's, uh, you'll note that the, that the, uh, the last speaker made the, the, the distinction between the civil rules and procedures, discovery, and evidential issues uh, that have been uh, uh, grafted onto the substantive law. He made a distinction there as to what was driving the high cost of litigation and what's really in need of reform. And uh, as I listened to that, I said, boy, that's, you know, there's, that's really true. And, and as I go through this, you'll see why that is and what's driving the cost of, of medical malpractice litigation at this point. It's really not the substantive law. Uh, it's the underlying procedures that we've attempted to take from civil law in general and, and force them onto uh, in a medical malpractice context. And finally, I'm going to talk about the perceived problems with uh, malpractice law at the present time and briefly about some of the possible solutions, although I'm not really um, very enthusiastic about any of them or I'm not very optimistic about many of them, but I, but I will talk about them briefly. And just so you'll pay attention, I'm going to tell you now that at that very end of the speech, I'm going to invoke Anna Nicole Smith. Okay, and and you can you can wonder why that is until I get to that point in the speech. But uh, that's 15 minutes away, so now you have to stay awake, thinking about Anna Nicole uh, and what she's got to do with tort reform. All right. Uh, first of all, what is the law of uh, of medical negligence? Uh, and again, I refer to Arizona law, but it's not substantially different than any other state. The and, and I'm, I'm going to read to you and quote to you directly from jury instructions that are given uh, by the judge to the juries at the conclusion of the evidence in medical malpractice cases. And the reason I do that is because I want you to hear exactly what the jury hears about what they're supposed to decide in exactly the language in which it is given to them. So you get some context of what happens at the very end when the jury's heard all the evidence and is about to go out and commit a verdict. And, and render a verdict. It's those jury instructions, by the way, which in many cases form the basis of appeals uh, in these cases. Uh, there may be evidential errors that are alleged. There may have been pretrial motions that were decided one way or the other way. There may have been summary judgments that were granted or not granted that form uh, the basis of appeals. But more often than not, appellate cases hinge on jury instructions. And so I want you to hear what those instructions are First of all, what is medical negligence? 
And here's what the instructions say. Medical negligence is the failure to comply with the applicable standard of care. And that, what is that standard of care? That's the degree, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm omitting large portions here to give you the essence of it. That degree of care, skill, and learning that would be expected under similar circumstances of a reasonably prudent fill-in-the-type of doctor or, or medical professional within this state. There's a couple of things to focus on there. First of all, I'll start with the thing at the end, within this state. It's localized. And uh, sometimes uh, lawyers will argue that it should be even more localized, that there should be distinction between rural doctors and urban doctors, or doctors in a particular hospital even versus another hospital, uh, or another area of the city, or uh, depending on the type of practice, there should be variations. But the standard instruction in Arizona is what's the standard of care for a reasonably prudent doctor will take within the state? And what in the world does reasonably prudent mean? A question which the jurors often ask after they get this instruction. They write a little note to the judge. They say, what do you mean reasonably prudent? And uh, the, the judges will more often than not say reasonably prudent means reasonable and prudent. <laughs> and let me tell you that again. It means you've got to be reasonable, but you've got to be prudent. Got that, everybody? And the jury looks very disappointed when you tell them that. You just keep reading the same words to them over and over again. Uh, but the reason why uh, judges don't wing it uh, in that situation is that they're afraid of the Court of Appeals and the whole case being reversed because they wandered away from the approved instructions. <clears throat> Second thing that has to be proven in a medical malpractice case is by the plaintiff, by preponderance of the evidence, by the way, they have to prove that it's more likely true than not true, that there's been fault. And what is Fault. Fault is medical negligence, and that's that violation of the standard of care we talked about earlier. Medical negligence that was the cause of the injury. Negligence causes an injury if it, number one, helps produce the injury. That's what we think of as normal as causation. And if the jury would not have happened without the negligence. In other words, a but-for test. Were it not for this incident, if, it, if, if, there hadn't, if it hadn't have happened, if this hadn't occurred, then the injury wouldn't have happened. And it has to help produce the injury, not be the sole cause of the injury, which gets us to this comparative negligence notion that was spoken about earlier, but it helps produce the injury. And the third thing that has to be proven, of course, is that there was damage. And the, the, uh, the plaintiff has to uh, fi- find that there was damage and, that there's a, and they can have to assess a monetary value to that damage. As the lawyers are uh, always fond of telling the juries, uh, you know, this is an awful event. We can't go back in time. We can't uh, fix this person's leg. We can't bring them back to life, whatever the nature of the damage is. There's only one way that we can reward this person or their family or whatever, and that's with money. So in court, everything comes back to money in most cases. Right now I'm in family court, on a family court assignment where sometimes it's about money, but sometimes it's about completely different things. Uh, but in medical negligence cases, it all comes down to money in the end. And what does the, what is the jury instructed that they have to do? That they have to reasonably, they have to give the full amount of money that would reasonably and fairly compensate the plaintiff uh, for each of the element of damages proved by the evidence to have resulted from the fault of 
the defendant. And what are those elements? I'll read them to you. The nature, extent, and duration of the injury, the pain, discomfort, suffering, disability, disfigurement, and anxiety already experienced and reasonably probable to be experienced in the future as a result of the injury, the reasonable expenses of necessary medical care, treatment, and services rendered, and reasonably probable to be incurred in the future, lost earnings to date, and any decrease in earnings power or capacity in the future. You see a a theme here, the in the future theme. That's a big part of the award in these cases. Uh, The loss of love, care, affection, companionship, and other pleasures of the family relationship that's sometimes called loss of of consortium. That's where, and in order to prove up that element of damages, the plaintiff's lawyers will bring on uh, to show to the jury other members of the family of the person who's been injured who will talk at length and very convincingly uh, and uh, truthfully, I assume, about how their life has changed because of the injury uh, suffered by their loved one. The loss of enjoyment of life, that is the participation in life's activities to the quality and extent normally enjoyed before the injury. So if the plaintiff is someone who was an avid tennis player or skier and now uh, has lost the use of one of his limbs and can no longer enjoy skiing or playing tennis, that loss of enjoyment in the future uh, of that enjoyment of life has to be translated into present dollar amounts uh, in according to this uh, to this uh, uh, jury instruction Uh, so the result of that is essentially that you take your uh, your plaintiff as you find him if there in fact has been an injury that's been caused by the fault of the defendant and that injury is going to cause the plaintiff to lack this enjoyment of life for many years in the future, it is not a defense to say, well, nobody like it's stupid of him to ski all the time, and uh, so he can't ski anymore. Well, I don't ski. Uh, why does he have to ski? Uh, I don't play tennis. Why does he have to play tennis? Why doesn't he take up chess instead? That's, that's not going to work. Uh, the, uh, the jury will be instructed to measure the actual loss of enjoyment of life for that particular plaintiff. It's customized. We do have, as was mentioned uh, previously, we were talking about the, the notion of, of uh, contributory negligence. Uh, that ending in, uh, in most states, it's ended in Arizona. Also, we have a comparative negligence scheme uh, of comparative fault. Uh, and we also have, uh, by statute here, a a provision for naming, and this is a uh, defense lawyers like to do this, name non-parties who are also at fault. So we end up with the jury being confronted with a laundry list of people uh, who are potentially at fault in tort cases. Uh, and that, that uh, those, these people are not parties to the lawsuit, but the defendants are allowed to identify them uh, as potential uh, as, as potential uh, causes of the uh, of the injury, and uh, uh, war story. I'll tell you about a case was a neg- was not a, a medical negligence case, but this is this is one I had where it involved a uh, uh, an individual who uh, got drunk, got very drunk uh, in a uh, in a bar, uh, got into his vehicle, drove off through the middle of Phoenix at two o'clock in the morning, went 110 miles an hour up Seventh Street, 
and there was there were two men who had the hood of their car up who were staring into the uh, at the engine because the radiator had overheated and the drunk was coming 110 miles an hour hit the car in the rear the two guys who were looking at the radiator were killed as they as their car flipped over them the uh, survivors of the decedents sued. Well, let's see if we can guess who was sued here. The drunk? Yeah, the drunk was sued, although the drunk was as a guest of the Department of uh, Corrections for the next 20 years, so he doesn't have a lot of money. Uh, the bar was sued for over-serving him, supposedly. So we're going to have this big trial about how many drinks the guy had, whether or not he was obviously intoxicated or not, the method of service of the drinks, and all of this stuff. But the defense lawyers under this non-party at fault thing, guess, you'll never guess who they wanted to bring into the suit, not as a party, but so the jury could allocate fault. The car manufacturer. Car manufacturer. Good guess, but wrong. Close. You're on the right. To the right. Highway department. No, another good guess. No? Alcohol manufacturers. Another good guess. No, wrong. <laughs> Farmer grew the crops. Now you're getting close. It was that, it was that attenuated. It turns out, remember I said the guys were looking into their, in, looking at their engine and looking at the overheated radiator? They found out during discovery that these guys had taken the car to an auto shop two weeks before to have the radiator repaired, and that repair had supposedly failed, or at least speculatively had failed, which was why the car were overheated that evening and they were looking into it. They wanted to shoot, sue the radiator shop. Not sue them, but have them as non-parties at fault and argue to the jury that some of the fault for this death should be allocated to the poor guys in the radiator shop who either did or didn't repair the radiator properly. I struck that and didn't allow that. But uh, it was at least, it was a, at least, it was a sort of a mind-blowing argument. And, when, and the lawyers made it with such uh, conviction. I mean, they... I tell you, lawyers, lawyers can get themselves worked up and, and convinced of, I, as I said, I practiced for 25 years, so I remember this. Uh, and and you, can get, you talk to your client, and 10 minutes later, you are completely into their mindset and will do anything for them to win the case, anything that's legal and ethical, uh, most of the time. Uh, and, and these lawyers were just absolutely sure that we should bring this radiator repairman in as a non-party at fault. So we have non-parties at fault, and comparative negligence does apply in situations where there are multiple, and this, this, this involves you, m- medical health professionals involved in the same procedure or series of procedures. So you get, law- you get lots of lawsuits where two doctors, four nurses, the hospital, the, uh, the outpatient facility, anybody who ever saw this patient within some uh, period of time uh, before their death or their injury, they're all named as parties. And if they all get to the jury, then what will happen is the jury will be faced with a verdict form where they will have to apportion fault between and among these various defendants. Not the radiator shop guy, but just about everybody else who ever saw the, the patient. So this does come into play. So we do have comparative fault. We also have a, a, an ancient tort concept called respondeat superior, which simply means that the employer is responsible for the actions of the employees if they're acting within the scope of their employment, and that's why the hospitals get sued along with the surgeon, for instance. Uh, and uh, that comes into play in, in 
a large percentage of medical malpractice cases. The juries are also, remember I mentioned all of these few things happening in the future. Well, the, uh, of course, the, uh, in order to be able to predict the future, we don't give the jurors a crystal ball. Uh, instead, we present them with experts who extrapolate things into the future. And one of the key things that they know, have to, have to learn about is the uh, life expectancy of the individuals. So we usually give them instructions from actuarial tables as to how long everybody's going to live. Uh, we also instruct them, of course, that insurance is absolutely irrelevant and they are not to even think about insurance or whether anybody is insured it has nothing to do with anything and they're not to worry their pretty little heads about it. Of course, the number one question you get from the jurors after you give them that instruction is, okay, but were they insured? How much is, what are the limits on the policy? And they, no, and you keep telling, no, forget about insurance, forget about insurance. Uh, but they can't get it out of their heads because even telling them not to think about insurance rings the bell of the insurance bell in their heads. There are some lawyers now who don't want that instruction given. They say, forget it. Just, let's just not breathe a word about insurance. The problem then is that the jurors uh, often will ask questions. In, in Arizona, we allow civil jurors to ask questions during the trial, and they will bring up the issue of insurance during the course of the, uh, of the, uh, of the presentation of evidence. So that, that doesn't work very well. All right, I'm briefly... I'm performed. I'm going over time already here, so I'm going to really zip ahead here to the procedures. Uh, complaints are filed and served against medical professionals. In Arizona, you have to do an affidavit of merit right at the beginning. This was a big reform several years ago that was passed. I, that affidavit of merit is from uh, typically an expert, a doctor, who says, yeah, there's some merit to this lawsuit. Uh, yeah, this person was really hurt and it uh, looks like it's below the standard of care as far as, what, as, far as I know. I don't think that that pr procedure has stopped a single lawsuit. I haven't heard about it. I haven't heard of any being, uh, 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 being stopped after it was filed for an insufficient affidavit of merit. And I haven't heard even rumors of cases not being brought. We don't have any fewer cases than we were being brought four or five years ago. So it's hard to see that that was any kind of meaningful reform. We do have full open discovery. Uh, the judges meet with the lawyers very early on in the case. They set up... Uh, depositions, disclosures, identification of experts' deadlines. In Arizona, we have a rule, only one expert on standard of care per side, plus the physician defendant can also testify about st standard of care. That gives the defense two people talking about it, uh, and the, uh, the plaintiff only one, but that's a standard that we have set up. The non-parties at fault, I mentioned, we do have full-blown open discovery and an affirmative obligation to continually to disclose information throughout the course of litigation. That eats up a tremendous amount of time, money, and motion practice. Cases settle quite frequently, as I'm sure you're aware. If we have multiple parties, we have now, I've noticed something happening in the last five years or so, we have an awful lot of prime target defendants settling right before the trial, leaving peripheral defendants to bear the full force and brunt of a trial. And that has occurred on, on repeated occasions. And sometimes the experts, now follow me now, the experts for the prime defendant who was, had some opinions about how some of the other defendants were also at fault, remember the comparative fault thing? He goes and flips sides after his client, after his client settles, he goes and works for the plaintiff and testifies at trial against his former co-defendant. Uh, it's... It's a very, becoming quite common. It's a nice little strategy. And so, you, so uh, that, that is happening again and again. 
at trial. We have jury trials in 99 out of 100 of these cases. I'm the third speaker in a row who's going to say juries are good things. Uh, the the uh, jurors go through the voir dire process, the sifting process at the beginning, where they're asked about their life experiences, their attitudes, their prejudices and biases. Some of them are struck for cause. Uh, both sides, of course, get peremptory challenges to eliminate them. Uh, and as I mentioned before, they're instructed at the end of the case and have jury forms that allow them to do this percentage comparative of fault. Uh, uh, they simply allocate it. We don't let them do the math. We do the math ourselves. Just total amount of damages and then percentage for each defendant if there's a, a plaintiff's verdict. And we have to keep telling them, make sure it adds up to 100, 100 percent. I'm not going to accept a verdict that only adds up to 90 percent or adds up to 150 percent. Must be 100 percent. All right, what are the perceived problems with the current system? Uh, enormous verdicts is a perception. Uh, I think that is exaggerated to some extent, although there have been some very, very big verdicts. Frivolous suits, uh, that's another perception. Uh, the, and that's a very difficult thing to control because almost all suits look colorable as they're pled. It's very difficult to figure out the frivolous ones from the non-frivolous ones. The cost of defense is enormous, both in time, of everyone who's involved, attorney's fees, expert fees. There is a, another cost, which is uncertainty, because everybody is under the gun of not knowing what the eventual resolution of the matter is going to be. And all of those things added together, it is believed, leads to settlements sometimes, uh, and those settlements encourage still more uh, lawsuits. The non uh, a second perceived problem is that we have non-professional jurors. We have lay jurors who are asked to decide technical medical issues in many cases, which leaves them into the hands. Uh, they can be, uh, they can be uh, led by the attorneys, who may not have the purest of motives, or the experts, who may not have the purest of motives. In fact, they all have one motive. They want their side to win. And the, the, uh, the jurors are perceived to be unable to understand or grasp the technical issues. I don't believe that. As a matter of fact, I think good lawyers uh, and good experts uh, working together uh, and, and conscientious jurors can come up with, can solve the most difficult of riddles uh, if, the, if it's well presented to them. Poorly prepared and presented cases is where you get irrational verdicts because the, the, then you have the blind leading the blind, you have bad lawyering, and you have jurors who don't understand the material, and you end up with, with an anomalous verdict. I mentioned insurance before. The assumption is that, uh, that the existence of, a jurors, of insurance drives up awards. All right, here's possible solutions. First possible solution to some of these perceived problems is uh, damage limitations. Uh, and sometimes people talk about that on the federal level. They want Congress to pass a law limiting medical malpractice damages in state lawsuits. Uh, I think that probably in the long run that's going to be a non-starter. It's certainly on the state level here in Arizona it's very difficult because we have constitutional provisions about damages that would have to be changed and you'd have to have an election and get and we have enormous lobbying campaigns by insurance companies and uh, doctors and plaintiff's lawyers and we've seen that before play out in other states and occasionally in Arizona. It's a very expensive bloodbath and it's the, the real issues tend to get lost in those kind of debates. At the federal level, you have a real federalism problem. What is the federal government doing involved in what has traditionally been a state uh, law issue of, of uh, negligence? And here's where Anna Nicole Smith comes in, because she gives us a tip as to what, which way the federal courts may be going. Um, 
the, the, her most recent tragedy aside, before this, her claim to fame was she married a man, you may recall, an older gentleman who passed away and uh, purportedly left her lots of money, or didn't, depending on whose point of view you looked at. And she ended up in a probate proceeding in Texas battling against her son-in-law, her former son-in-law. And let's see if I have the facts straight here. She lost in, uh, in that proceeding. Uh, and in fact, there was some sort of counterclaim brought against her by the son-in-law that he was victorious on. He had a big judgment against her. Excuse me? Stepson, of course. Why would I say son-in-law? That's right. Stepson, that's right. Not son-in-law. Stepson. Uh, who doesn't like her very much? And, uh, and uh, he brought some, I think it was a libel counter, something he won on uh, in the state courts in Texas. And that judgment against her allowed her to go to California, I think it was, and file for bankruptcy. And when she filed for bankruptcy, there, then there was a big conflict between whether, in the bankruptcy, by the way, she claimed that she, as an asset, had all this money from her, her deceased husband, which the state courts in Texas said she didn't have. And so the bankruptcy judge was then placed in opposition to the state probate uh, judge. That case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they took the case, not because they're big fans of Anna Nicole Smith, but because of the federalism issue, the issue of whether or not a federal bankruptcy court could essentially overrule a traditional uh, state court issue, a finding in a state court issue, like probate, which is really a state court issue. Uh, and, and they decided, interestingly, that yes, she could. The bankruptcy court did have jurisdiction. And I think what, what Anna's case teaches us is that even this uh, conservative, supposedly federally oriented uh, Supreme Court that we have now uh, may, in fact, be open to uh, the federal government taking jurisdiction away from areas that we consider to be uh, essentially uh, state court matters, like tort reform. So there, that may be the, the way of the future in terms of, uh, of uh, 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 tort reform on a federal level. Other possibilities to take these cases completely out of the courts and have private arbitration by contract. Uh, that's a promising possibility. Uh, there may be some anomalous results in that, and that has to be thought through in some detail. The other possibility that I like is fee shifting. Uh, in, in Arizona, in uh, contract cases, for instance, the losing party uh, may, be awarded, may be forced to pay attorney's fees to the winning party. The problem in medical malpractice cases, of course, is that the vast majority of plaintiff's lawyers don't have any fees coming in. They're on a contingency. So if they lose, if it's a defense verdict, then... Who is exactly going to pay these defense fees? Is it going to be the lawyer? Is it going to be the penniless client uh, who's still on a respirator? I mean, what's, uh, how are we going to work this out here? Where's this money coming from? Still, an interesting issue. It does clash up against uh, the policy that we want to, in fact, uh, allow people to have their cases funded by contingencies. Uh, we can't pass a law saying, okay, no more contingencies, because if we do that, then we lose 80% of the cases, which may be viewed as a good thing or a bad thing, but I think most legislators would view it as a bad thing. The chances for almost any of these uh, results occurring in terms of reform are are dim, I think, in the short run, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, keep thinking about ways in which these perceived problems uh, can be resolved, either by legislative action, constitutional action, or by uh, contractual or or, uh, development of the law, either the common law or the state statutes. Anyway, I've gone over my time. And I want to thank you for... uh